And I just wanted to do this so I'll have it on tape once and I'll clear my conscience that, you know, after all these years of research that I've, you know, the, the hadith that says if you, if you hide your knowledge then in the final day, you're harnessed to the, uh, the harness of the camel. So now I clear my conscience and discharge my duty and then it's done. But I don't believe that it has anything to do with the sources at all. I think it has to do with something much more basic than that. You are living in, in an age in which there is very little certainty and very little security. This is modernity. You don't, you don't, you're not assured you're even going to live and die in the same area. People are jumping around all the time. You cannot guarantee anything. I mean, the security that used to exist from family relations, at least someone there to always take care of you. Is the modern age is a very vicious age, and there's a lot of insecurity. On top of that, you are you exist as a culture, as a defeated, demoralized culture. I mean, when you think about it, we went up and down about Salman Rushdie. At the end, neither the book was banned, nor the man was dead. When the whole Muslim world rises against a man and is unable to either stop the book or kill the man. It gives you a sense of the extent of our defeat. We're nothing. We're absolutely nothing. Zilch. We can't even do the, the, I mean, I'm not saying that we should have killed some men. I think this whole fatwa was nonsense. But the point is, the demoralization that follows from that is extensive. And whenever an Islamic thing got rough socially and politically, someone had to say. I mean, if I'm frustrated at work, if my boss is, 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 is humiliating me at work, I need to, to feel my worst somewhere. Either I take it out on my students or I take it out on my family. To come and, to come and say, no, don't take it out on anyone, needs a person of high moral care or in sense of knowledge to be able to guard. In my experience, discourses about women in the contemporary age are much more about power dynamics than anything else. In other words, Feeling a sense of alienation and frustration. It is very, very comfortable image. It's a very secure image and a comfortable image. If you can at least stabilize this one side of your life, okay? To put it bluntly, you want an image of a model Muslim wife, mother, daughter, whatever it is. What's that model? I mean, she wears a hijab so there is no competition. I mean, I don't mind people if, if I believe if you believe the hijab is an obligation, then you should do it, and you must do it. But what ails me is that the discourses that the hijab have taken are completely different. When well, it says, So they will not be recognized and hurt. Well, can't you construct an argument that sometimes, nowadays, wearing the hijab is what makes you distinguishable and hurtable, but no one wants to listen to any jurisprudential argument. People don't care about what jurisprudence says. When the Quran says, the opposite cause behind the law is protection, not enticement. It says protection, that they will not be recognized, so they will be hurt. Why? Because the hypocrites used to target Muslim women and, and hurt them. And so the Quran came and said, all of you must look the same. And since the, of the exposure of the check, all of us can agree about that. Then that's the operative cause for the law. Can't we say that it depends on the context? In some contexts, not wearing the veil will be the cause for you to be hurt by injured. Then you should wear the veil. In other contexts, it will be the cause for you to be hurt if you wear the veil. 
And then the operative cause is the reason the law exists. But no one is interested. So you want a woman that's a muhajjaba, so there's no competition. And a woman, constructive image of feminine, constructive image of a woman. The definition of the woman that is soft is what? Is this person who's obedient, submissive, quiet, because it's a very comforting image. The world can be as harsh as the world wants to be. But you'll always go someplace where you'll sit down and this will, you know, someone will rush to your service. Literally saying, yes, master, how can I please you? It's, it's, it's not something new. I mean, in, in, in the West has constructed it in the form of the, the Orientalist harem. And we are constructing it today in the form of the so-called Muslim woman who, if you read Islamic literature at all, it goes to heaven only if her husband is pleased with her. If God would, if God, if the prophet would have ordered someone to prostrate, a human being to prostrate to another human being, he would have ordered a wife to prostrate her, to, to her husband. That if he has a tough excreting ulcer from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet and she licks it for him, she wouldn't fulfill his right. That if he says, Come here, submit to me on the back of a camel, she must comply. Isn't that the, the image of a woman that's constructed today? It's not just a hijab. In other words, a non-problematic woman. A woman who is submissive, passive, non-competitive, non-problematic, to be an element of stability in a highly unstable modern age. That's what I believe it's all about. Not about these sources. And that's why I don't even bother talking about these sources to Muslims anymore. I don't think we care. And I don't think, and I think even after, even in a lecture like this, most people basically want to, want to know what the point is, not what the sources say. Because we are completely desensitized to the process of evidence gathering. In terms of the evidence gathering and evidence uh, being real, I think people have been taught and been born by the so-called Muslim parents to mystify and also mystify their leaders. Like, I see this unconditional belief in what scholars say. <laughs> people are basically telling me that you know the knowledge is there and it's somewhat mystified because they don't know the Arabic language. They don't have to access to all these you know, novel knowledge here. And so because of that, they've mystified it to a level that is unreachable. Like any evidence that you presented, by say if these people were sitting with us right now, any evidence you presented, they would have just shut their minds off about 20 minutes ago. No, I, I know that. In fact, we, we shut their minds off as soon. What, the first five minutes, we want to know what your conclusion will be. And depending on where you think you're going to end up, that's when they shut off. In other words, if they think that the conclusion of all of this two hours and a half of talking is that hijab is not required, they're, they're shut off. What I find amazing is no one has ever debated anything. I haven't been engaged once. I mean, everywhere it's basically the process of exclusion, but not engagement. In other words, you, you say, oh, this is, this is the person who creates problems for freedom. Well, what type of form do we have to have this type of engagement and speak of? The message is completely controlled by hierarchy. And our schools are, there's no open form. I mean, you basically have your living room right now. You know, this is the only time I've ever had in my life where there's been proper engagement. I mean, should we, what would you recommend that we do that we actually have kind of formalized? That turns a lot more people than this. Well, there, there, there are tons of, of, of people 
who are suffering from the Quran, in every conflict that I've gone to, it's always been the same. The response from the young people raised in the United States is extremely excited. Because it's, it's like discovering a new Islam, literally. Oh, we didn't know it was so complex. We didn't know that there was so much debate. We always thought that Islam, everything was clear cut, clear cut, black and white. We always thought that we, we learned everything we need to learn in, in the first two Isna conferences, for example. And after that, you just keep repeating the same things over and over. You know, be pious, fear God, be good to your parents, blah, 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 and so on and so forth. And they're very excited. And you're absolutely right. It's the hierarchy that always steps in and says, no, we don't want you to be thinking in terms of these complexities. But in terms of asking me what to do, I don't know. I'm not an activist. I mean, I am simply a bookworm. I read and I write and, and then I explain what I've read. But in terms of institutionally being able to do anything, that's not, that's not something that I can even... All I can tell you is that if we have a chance of survival, we must be, we must be able to establish our own academic intellectual institutes and forums funded entirely domestically, not from foreign money, and built on the principle of criticalness and not body. I don't know. I mean, I really, I've, I've been asked this question a million times. I mean, all I can think of is that there must be intellectual forums for Muslims in, in which there is sort of an allergic reaction to dogma and a keen interest in supporting and funding critical, critical thinking. Because I mean, we're in an intellectual rut, and we're not going to we're not even going to bring back half of the richness of the Islamic civilization unless we are able to come to a speaker or a writer and say, listen. The first rule of all, you are worth my time, you have to teach me something, you have to tell me something new. And if you don't, you're not worth my time. If you just impose that simple standard, you're going to cancel out about 99% of all lectures and speeches and writing in the Muslim, in the, in the Muslim world, in the, particularly in the United States. Because most of it doesn't say anything new. You've heard all the hadith before, you've heard the, the, the whole bunch before. Now, how does one Large types of institutes or intellectual forums or so on. I mean, I'm, that's, that's, I get my feeling is someone active enough, determined enough, they can. And if they, there are enough of these people, they, they'll, they'll set them up. And if they invite the, more, the, the critical thinkers and marginalize the dogmatists, right now it's opposite. The dogmatists have completely marginalized the, the, the critical thinkers. But what I mean, I've never thought of myself as a critical thinker. When I came to the United States, I always thought of myself as a traditional growth. It was to my great shock that suddenly, I mean, not only a traditional growth, but I've always been back home, I've always thought of myself as a very conservative group. I mean, I, I don't like chairs, I don't like uh, a lot of modern things, but I come to the United States and I've discovered that here I'm a liberal. I mean, it's been a bit transformed into a, 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 a it's, you consider it radical. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that it's an issue of liberalism or anything like that. I mean, I truly feel it is its ability to a simple principle. None of us represent the divine world. We search the divine world. Right. And, and yeah, 
I mean, basically, we, we try to convince each other of what the divine wants. There are certain things that are clear-cut and obvious. There are things that, I mean, I'm not, I would listen to someone, for example, try to argue that there are five prayers that you should pray three times a day. I will debate that. I mean, I will engage in that. But for someone to come and tell me that there are no five prayers, or only two prayers a day, First, before I give that person time to listen to you, I want to see some real research. I mean, I, I will consider that. But based first on proof of some real work. Because the presumption is against it. Here we're talking about food, and here we're talking about the basics of religion. The presumption is against, not for. While everything else, when someone comes and the the presumption is for you. The presumption that you have, the presumption of your right to speak is for you, not against you. Because you have a duty to honor ma'roof and nahi al-munkar. But if it's someone else that's going to define the ma'roof for you and the munkar is going to good and forbidding the evil, but if it's someone else that's going to come and define the good for you and the, and, and the, and the evil for you, then what is your role exactly? To go and ask someone else to give me a list of the good and evil and let me just go around show the list to people? And, and so what, 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 what role do you play? If you do not have the ability to investigate the good and the evil, and to come to a conviction, and know that if your conviction is based on hawa, on whim, because your mother likes it, or because your father told you so, or because you can gain some advantage socially or something, if you adopt a certain position, you are going to answer for that on the final day. And you're going to you're going to pay very heavily. Because you basically played around with God's religion. But if your conviction is based on true investigation, nothing that's new with hell. And here, I mean, this is not, this is true jihad. Because most of us adopt what we adopt because our parents have oriented us one way or the other. That's still hell. I mean, I, I think that's not any better than someone who comes to say, this is the law, do it. From someone who says, no, I don't believe this is a law. And both of them are basically debating according to what makes their life more comfortable in their social sense. I think there's a duty to investigate. And I think that there's, there's a duty to, that there's a duty to search the divine will and to take the divine will very seriously. Most of what's happening in the United States is that there's this great effort for Dawah. We bring speakers, speakers like Saraj Bahaj, and he's very influential in the ability to, to associate with people on all levels and to reach out to people. And so once we've reached out to them, we're like, okay, here's the Quran. And then after that, there really isn't much left because yeah. the dogma fits it, right? Yeah, right and it's right. turned a lot of people yeah. I've met away. Yeah, I've, I've worked with a lot of a lot of converts who have reverted back or reverted away from Islam again, and, and particularly women. I mean, women converts have the, the, the worst situation of all. Either they come in more vigilant and more vigilant to adopt the dogma than, than, than Muslims themselves, which is fine, but often they come in with really high hopes. High hopes. Often they're married by either a person who wants a green card or married by a person who doesn't, who has different attitudes towards American women than Arab or Indo Pakistani women. I mean, I used to work in these divorce cases and abuse cases. It was basically the attitude of the man. I treat an American woman differently than I treat an Indo-Pakistani woman or Egyptian woman. Because these are like real women. But American women are 
and and consequently, the poor woman undergoes a, a tremendous amount of, of what I call abuse. And often, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many cases, for example, how many cases in which the husband marries an American woman, she's a student here, and once the studies are done, she goes back home to look for a wife, and if he doesn't find one, he comes back to her, but if he finds one, basically she's literally enormous amount. I think there is something, I mean, this should tell us that we're really abusing our religion. Because no minimal amount of understanding of Islam would legitimate something like this. When I used to go to these conferences, that's another one of the reasons he banned me from them, the Ikna and Isna and all the, uh, the famous acronyms, or the Qurayshi camp, this camp. I would always come in, and this is how I always start the, uh, the lecture. I say, look around you. Count the number of converts in the room. And, as always, it will be a handful. I mean, if it, it will be maybe three, four percent. And out of a hundred, it will be about three or four people. And so you want proof that Islam has failed in the United States? That's it. Islam, historically, has died. Every place in which it has failed to win domestic conflict, in other words, it has failed to domesticate itself, it had died. And historically, when Islam survived in India, for example, why? Because it was Indians, Indians who were converting to Islam. Bosnia, it was Bosnians who were converting to Islam. It is not, if it was the Turks who would stay, it would have happened. In Africa, when you look at these Africans that were converting to Islam, and historically you look at the, the, the history of Muslim minorities, invariably, they failed to, to become a domesticated part of the culture that Islam eventually does. Because it, it is the dynamics of, of, of Muslim minorities are such. And I thought that that's the, that's the, that's the proof that, you, that you're failing. Believe it or not, People were extremely upset about this. I did it three times, and then the third time they said enough is enough. You can't start your lectures that way. Well, there were, of course, other things as well, but they, they had asked me several times nicely not to make that point. And three times I ignored them, and then the third time they came and said, listen, you know, if, if either you're going to stop making this point, or we're not going to have you come to our conferences again. We, alhamdulillah, so I'm spreading the fastest growing religion, I don't know why you want to give these kids the wrong impression about Islam. That Islam is in trouble or something. I said because it's, because it's not the fastest growing religion. It's, it's the census bureau that wanted to, you to believe this. That sold you that idea and you bought into it. That's one. Two is that if you count the converts but you don't count the converts out. So to exit. And you don't count the number of Muslims that we lose through attrition. In other words, kids that grow up as a professor, for example, I meet a lot of Muslim students who come, oh, you know, I have a Muslim origin. My dad is a Muslim and like, my mom is Muslim, but I'm not. Tons. You guys don't see them because they don't like to associate with other Muslims. But tons. I have one of my students who converted, his mother and father are both Muslim. He converted to Christianity and now wants to be a priest. And when you, when you talk to him, you feel this, this person the only reason he, has, he wants to be priest is because he is unable to separate Islam from his mother and father. He literally believes 
that it is a requirement in Islam to bring a huge pot and cook a lot of food and sit and curse the, the, and, and, and sit and backbite against all the people who are going to eat the food because you have to work so hard and they're so insensitive, they never help, and it was their turn, they, they, the food they cook is far inferior to yours, and such and such person never served chicken, and you've noticed that, and so, so in other words, that the culture of cooking and bitching is, is part, and he was trying to convince me that this is part of Islamic theology. I mean, he was trying to convince me of that. And he was trying to convince me that it is also part of Islamic theology that you, because he, an imam had said in a khutbah that you, it is haram to ask another woman what's your major in college. He came to me and said, the Quran says you cannot ask another woman what's your major in college. And he's not a stupid, he's not a stupid person. But you, it gives you a sense of the extent of the deformity. You know, when we come and say open-mindedness, there is always that risk that the impression be created, oh, well, this person is westernized. Right? Westernized. He, oh, he, he believes in American liberal, corrupt, blah, blah, blah. I am, I'm, frankly, I, I'm sort of so often baffled that I feel sometimes really depression. It's, uh, I, I mean, I came from a village called Mikralanab in Egypt. Small, very traditional, rural village. You literally, one of the very ha- first hadith you memorize is, well, when you memorize the Quran, you read verses, Ask people of zikr. Zikr, and then you ask the shaykh, who are the people of zikr? He says, well, it could be the pious people and the knowledgeable people, and there's this debate about what Ahl zikr means. As a child, immediately, it strikes you, oh, so there's debate about this one word in the Qur'an, I mean, I remember this very distinctly. This was the one thing in the Qur'an that I asked about. I mean, I was required to memorize the whole thing without asking any questions or knowing anything. But this is the one thing that I wanted to know. What is it? And the Sheikh said, well, you know, there's... Immediately, oh, so there's debate. One of the very first hadiths you learn is what? لِكُلِّ مُسْتَهْدٍ نَصِيبٍ كُلُّ مُسْتَهْدٍ نُصِيبٍ كُلُّ مُسْتَهْدٍ نُصِيبٍ Every mushtahid is, is right. How could that be? Every mushtahid is right. I mean, if you think about it to, to, to what it means, a literal expression, this is the prophet, this is the hadith from the prophet. Every mushtahid is right. Right. Not every mushtahid, thank you very much for your effort. Not good job, but, you know, there are, there is right. And, no, every mushtahid is right. Giving them equal credibility. And then it says, God, if God decides, the same hadith, if God decides that you are correct, you get two points, two hasanat, ajran. If you're wrong, you get an us. So you're even compensated for being wrong. In other words, I can sit here and spew the stuff I spew about hijab and be completely wrong and still get rewards. In fact, more than that, I can sit here and make an argument, a the argument, that yes, Women who are slaves should not, their aura is from the knee to the navel, and still be rewarded. Now, I learned this not, I didn't even back then, we didn't even have a TV. Even though knowing something that we, we would hear from, you know, the, the doctors who would come from Cairo about something called America. America, we used to call America. But no notion of, you don't have a TV, you have a radio, and the radio is always listening to 
صوت مصر the voice of Cairo or is that the Quran the 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 radio chant? What I'm saying is early on this idea of discourse, difference of opinion, that you can be wrong and compensated for being wrong, did not come from the West. It had nothing nothing to do with the West. It came from our my culture. It's something that was. And you know why? Because we always ask when you join your first halakha on fiqh, and then the sheikh starts. You have to know that there were, at one point, 500 Islamic legal schools, that most of them have become extinct. And then this is the stuff you, start, have, to, you have to memorize. Among the extinct schools, Madrasat al-Awda'iyyah, Madrasat al-Tawriyyah, Madrasat al-Sufyaniyyah, Madrasat al-Tabaraniyyah, and so on. You, you, you have to memorize all the extinct schools, and you have to memorize all the surviving schools. And then, the surviving schools, of course, in the Sunni world, the Shafi, Malik, Hanafi, Hanbali, and so on. Zahriya, although it, 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 the text exists, but it's also it, it's extinct. And then you memorize the, the surviving schools in the Shia world, and the extinct schools in the Shia world. And then the first question you ask your Shaykh, well, isn't it one Quran? And isn't it one Sunnah? Even between the Shia and Sunnah, we share most, most of the Sunnah is the same. So why all these schools? And then you learn as a child, I mean, as, as, as a, as a nine-year-old, who had just memorized the Quran and now starting to study fiqh, in your first haqqa, that everyone is the Khalifa. So I don't use English terms so people think, oh, well, you're Westerners. You, everyone is the Khalifa of Allah, is the Vicegerent of Allah. But no one is the Khalifa of Allah. And so you're told that, well, the reason there are all these schools because there is jihad and people disagreed and they all wanted to search the divine will, but they all disagreed because human beings, and, it, and then you're told that the Quran said, which of course you've memorized anyway, that you will continue, that we have made you into nations and tribes, to discourse with one another. Lita'arafu means what? To get to know each other. Well, how, how is knowledge possible without discourse? Know each other, I'm going to read the pamphlet from the Ministry of Tourism? That's knowing each other? No. It's discourse. And can some sane human being say, oh yes, but the discourse should be between Muslims and non-Muslims, but not between Muslims. I mean, it's insane. You're going to say that we should discourse with non-Muslims, but we shouldn't discourse amongst ourselves? And you learn this, and you say, well, that's why, and then in the final day, God will tell us. Then you say, but Sheikh, if God tells us that Shafi was wrong, is Shafi doomed for being wrong? And you are told that no, because of this hadith and so on. I mean, it is part and parcel of Islamic culture. The exception is the Wahhabi school. Now that, that's a different bogus. The Wahhabi school, which was complete, completely had no popularity, until the 1973 when the price of oil shot up and then it became very heavily funded and so on, the Wahhabi school has a very different ideology. Wahhabi school is, is basically, it's everything is rather clear cut, there is no complexity, but in order to create that, you need to weed out a lot of the sources. So that's why the Wahhabi school insists that you use the Quran and Sunnah directly and you do not use juridical source. In other words, all these books are irrelevant. You go to the Quran and Sunnah direct, but in, in, instead of reading the, the considered works of someone far more knowledgeable than an imam, the imam is basically making himself a source. I mean, I don't see the distinction. 
the Imam, the one you're reading, went to the Quran and Sunnah. You're saying, no, no, I won't take his opinion. I want to the Quran and Sunnah. Fine, go to the Quran and Sunnah, but make make an argument to the evidence. That that is not that. That's the different discourse. Most of the MSAs and so on, by the way, in the United States, most of the Islamic organizations in the United States are very much part and parcel of the the, the Wahhabi type of ideological influence. Very hadith oriented. By hadith meaning. The hadith that occur in Rabbi Salahim mostly, the, the Gardens of the Righteous collection by Nawawi, the Arba'in Nawawiya, the, the, the 40 Nawawi hadith. These are the ones that are most often used. Not employment of juridical methodology, but fighting of juridical methodology. So, for example, when no one ever discusses what Ijma' means, you are told that there is Ijma' on this and Ijma' on that and Ijma' on this. That, that's all part of the Wahhabi discourse, which, you know, whether, if you want, it's. I mean, some people find it extremely persuasive that I know that young people from other cultures have changed the course of American society with their activism. I mean, if you think about it, it wasn't the, the, the senior ancient migrant immigrants from, from Russia, uh, Jew, uh, senior Jewish immigrants from Russia that, that made the difference in American politics. It was the young Jewish kids that were born here. When you look at the history of Jewish activism in this country, the, the initial immigrants from Russia were really losers. Bluntly. I mean, they, they did nothing. They lived in ghettos and made, you know, made some money and basically continued living isolated completely from their society. And not only that, I mean, in many other examples, in several parts of the Hispanic community, again, you see the same type of dynamics. So I believe that young Muslims can do but what they lack is the confidence that their understanding of Islam is legitimate as well. I mean, they very quickly are antagonized and threatened and scared, and they go off on their own. And sometimes, to the point that they can't even use the reason. I mean, I was in the... The man got up and he gave a khutbah about how men and women are corrupting everything these days and so on, you know, into action for. And then he said, you know... Some of you commit kufr all the time, every day, and you don't observe the boundaries of God. You know, with insolence, you violate the boundaries of God. For example, how many of you sit down on a chair after a woman has just gotten up? If a woman is sitting on a chair, the least you could do is to wait either 15 minutes or fan the chair before you sit down on the chair. Because otherwise, you will feel her body heat, and that's it. Now, okay, and he's serious, he wasn't broken. You know, you either wait 15 minutes or you fan the chair before sitting down. You know, this is what, again, I call Islamic playbook. Because it is sexually obsessed. You know, who, what type of mentality gets, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I, maybe I, I'm strange, but I can't conceive, and I might suggest to someone who gets, uh, gets excited because he just sat where a woman was sitting, is to see a psychologist. You really need help. But this was a khutbah. Now, you find American Muslims, I mean, and this is the, the, the context, you find these kids who are attending the, uh, this was during the summer, it was given and it's taught. Something tells them that this just can't be. But at the same time, they're afraid that if they say anything or whatever, then they, they're, they're not good Muslims. So what do they do? They just stay away. They just don't come to the mosque. In this khutbah, I knew two, two women who, who, who left Islam because of this khutbah. 
I mean, and their, their basis, their basis was, he's an imam. And when I was talking to them, they said, he's an imam, he wears the abaya. You, you're not, you're, I was wearing a shirt and trousers that day. So, he must really know what Islam is, and this type of religion we don't want to follow. You must, you know, you really go to Islam and so on. Uh, uh, there's some, really some absurdity that are committed all the time, and it's, uh, you only find it in the, in the, in the Islamic, in the Islamic context where it's actually absorbed and accepted. When, when you find a mosque basically saying women can attend the halakha, but behind the curtain, and if they want to ask questions, they have to write the question down and surrender. And, and, and hand it over. And you have to put the, this is, this took several evenings of discussion. You have to write the question, put it in a basket, push the basket out of, because you don't want to run the risk of the possibility that when the woman inside behind the curtain is handing the, the question over to the man, that their hands will touch. And that would be haram. So you have to put it in a basket and you push it out. Now by God, Tell me, does this have anything to do with Islam or, or the sources? Or is this basically extremely repressed psychology? Yeah, I don't, I can't see that this has anything to do with Islam. I mean, I, I, if someone comes to me and provides discussion from the sources, and some have, I mean, my, some of my shaykhs were extremely conservative in that sense. The difference was, see, they made an argument and they respected the argument of another. That was the difference. I mean, they, they understood that other sheikhs allowed women in their halakhas, and they were not Catholic, according to the sheikhs. And, you know, we were free to do whatever. Some of the women, I remember, some of the women had asked us to boycott the halakhas of the sheikhs that don't allow them to attend. And it was back then, frankly, I didn't like women very much, and I told the women, no, I won't support you. I, why should I suffer for you? So, the point is, again, a dynamism. That, that goes on. Other students in the halakha backed up the woman and refused to attend the, the halakha. I didn't know where in this dynamic that I think anyone was a Catholic. Nowhere. It's, uh, I mean, it, it, the, the examples are, are so many, especially when it comes to the, the issue of women and sex. I, I, I once spent a whole week in Arizona, the Moscow Phoenix. Do you know why? I, I wasted weak research because women in prayer, the imam made a mistake, none of the men corrected me. So she corrected me. I mean, it was, no, the, the woman is supposed to clap. But she's not supposed to, to correct verbally. But clapping is haram in other contexts. In other words, if, 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 if the speaker says, you know, you don't clap, you say takbir. By the way, this issue of takbir has no basis in Islamic law. I mean, the prohibition against clapping does. There, there are schools that say you don't clap. Why? Because when the Meccans used to go around the Kaaba, they used to clap and whistle. And so it became a form of pagan association. Some schools said, well, this is where the Meccans now catch the imam's error, and she seems to be the only one paying attention in prayer to correct the imam. I mean, I think whatever the violation, she deserves a pat on the back and say, you know, good job. You, you did. I mean, and even if you want to correct her and say, but, but you see, 
Then you you sit there and you discover that it's two schools that said a woman should clap, she shouldn't correct. And I don't know, three schools that say no, she can correct verbally. And another school that said she uh, goes <clears throat> not, so she doesn't use words. And so on. But is this the type of stuff you want to be, to, to have you <coughs> absorbed by? I mean, this is what's going to, going to allow us to build an Islamic civilization is whether you clap or, or you clear your throat or you, I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's an absurdity. It's, uh, the whole field is rather meaningful. There are a lot, when Bindad, you know, Sheikh Bindad, in Saudi Arabia, he issued a fatwa saying that it is haram for women to wear bra. Okay? This was his fatwa. I have the fatwa. This was issued in 1986. When that issued the fatwa, the, the rationale for the fatwa is it's fraudulent advertising. Let's put it nice. In other words, by doing that, you are misrepresenting fact, and consequently, when a person marries that woman under certain expectations and finds something different. Okay, this is the fatwa. You find Several imams here, and in, in Iqnan and so on, these places. They get up and they, the same thing, they announce to kids. Do you, I mean, without any notion of, do you know who is it that doesn't wear brassiers in the, in, in this country? You, you're giving, even if we say that it's supported, which of course I think is absurd, because it, it has nothing, the only basis is prevalent advertising. So you come and you tell these 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 teenage girls attending ikna, oh, you must know that uh, the, the the wearing of brazier is haram and it's against Sharia. Yani, and these people don't realize that they're destroying religion, effectively destroying religion. Because then, when you even want to debate it, becomes it's not open to debate. It is part of Sharia, and they even forget that it's part of Sharia because been back said so. So they, they don't even remember. That it comes from Bindad. They are under the impression that it comes from some hadith or something like that. You know, Muslim discourses are extremely problematic. I mean, I, I, I haven't done something like this in about three years, and I created this exception, as I told you, for my own group. But it is so disillusioned, this, this illusioning, that you just don't feel like you want to do it anymore. It's very marginal, it's very limited, and the, the worst of all is that the government persecuted. I mean, most of my sheikhs have been either killed in prison or, uh, you know. So the, the government persecutes it, so it's not even done comfortably. The reason, I, I was very lucky. I was growing up in the, in the 70s, and at that time, Nasser, uh, Sadat was going through his good face. So he allowed a lot of this. So that got repressive towards the end, but by that time I had received my education. So he got repressive too late. And then Mubarak is just chasing everyone and so on. But this type of, you know, so it's based on certain, on, on a hazard chance. You, you can't go to it. You can't continue this course this way. And much more, no one is really interested in reading this material because it's very easy to read other material and life is becoming so difficult that the type of serenity and peace for you to sit, like imagine if I would have written this lecture today, if I would have written it down, to have the patience to actually sit and read it, you must have some degree of peace and serenity in your own life. I mean, literally, you must be able to afford half an hour before you go to bed, make a cup of coffee and sit and not worry about anything else. But when your life is basically going around all day, 
finishing, you know, bureaucratic papers and, and, and worrying about how you're going to survive and, you know, like in Muslim countries. You much rather read a book that is like by Maududi, it's everything very clear, every, you know, there's black and white, everything, and so on and so forth. And with Muslims in the United States, it's the same thing, but it's for different reasons. Muslims in the United States have the, 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 the disease of being spoon-fed and, and spoiled. You know, sort of hamburger knowledge mentality, what I call hamburger knowledge, or, you know, Coca-Cola vending machine mentality. You know, you put the coin, you, you hit, it's very fast, it's very efficient, it's done. You find that permeates. There's no real patience. I mean, even as a you find undergraduate school, for example, and uh, here in the, in the university, undergraduates are extremely impatient to basically talk to you as if they're equal authorities. And in this society, you know, you indulge it because you know that's part of it. You know, they want to feel like they paid their dues before they paid anything. It's very different from the type of slow-paced attitude to knowledge that exists in context like Asia, for example, that, you know, you, you have to memorize the full Qur'an before you earn the right to ask your teacher a question. You learn patience, believe me. <laughs> you really learn patience. I mean, it, 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 you learn to have that burning in you and say, well, I'm not going to be able to, it, it's very patient and step by step. That, that's a big problem for American Muslims, American Muslims specifically. A major problem for American Muslims, actually, yeah, it's not just the memorizing Quran, I actually know Arabic at all. Um, no, I'm not saying that they have to memorize the Quran. Yeah, but I'm saying, like, do you feel, like, do you feel that way yourself, that it's better for people to know Arabic than understand the Quran? I'm not, I don't know about understand the Quran. Let me put it this way. You need Arabic if you want to be a spokesperson for Islamic law. Or, in other words, if you want to be a specialist on Islamic Sharia obligation. Otherwise, no, I do not think you need ever to understand the Quran. Otherwise, you are representing nothing but your own personal view, and you should recognize it as such. And you should advocate it as such. I mean, every Muslim has a right to read the Quran and say, this is what I think. If a jurist comes and says, no, you're wrong, then you, you have a right to read the jurist and say, I don't agree. Why don't you agree? You know what is really ironic about Islamic civilization? This is very ironic. A jurist always has to tell you why he reaches a certain rule. A non-jurist never has to tell you why he decides to follow or not follow the rule. In other words, the jurist always has to give reasons. The tabi' with al-'am never has to give reasons because it's between that person and God. A jurist is, is liable before God, so a jurist is sort of stepping in a representational, a representational relationship. And so they always say, now, in Islamic law, for example, the jurist comes and you come and ask me, is music haram or halal? And I say haram. Or let's, I say halal, whichever, it doesn't matter. And you say, okay, thank you very much, and you take off. Now, have you escaped liability? According to Islamic law, Islamic juridical discourses, no. Even if you do what's right, no. You know why? Because he didn't ask me what my reasons for saying this is. You escape liability only if you listen to the reasons, you consider the reasons without hawa, without win, and then decide. And that is why there is, you can do shopping, you can go to several jurists and ask. There is no, Islamic law didn't even create an Islamia, an obligation to follow, if you like consult five jurists, and each of them tell you something, you're not even obligated to accept one of their opinions. I mean, sort of these poor jurists in, Islam, in Islamic uh, discourses, it's like they spend their whole life reading and acquiring knowledge only to be told, 
people are completely free to ignore you if you want to. I mean, you should show respect to knowledge and knowledgeable people, but you could say, I respect you, but I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it. That's all. So I don't, I mean, it's, it's, so let's go back to American Muslims. There are American Muslims, when we talk about American Muslims, we, we say, okay, if you want to be jurist yourself, yeah, you need to know Arabic, you need to know much more than Arabic. If you want to basically represent your own views, no, you need to be able to consult these people. And you need to be able to read the Quran and understand the Quran. And you need to be able to do jihad against your own whims and resist your own temptations. In other words, be critical with yourself, be harsh on yourself. Know when you're doing something because you have an incentive to do it, selfish incentive, and when you're doing it because you really believe it. You know, I, I've, how many times have I seen people make an argument for or against hijab? Maybe this is not your experience, I mean, not your experiences that you've, you've encountered. But in the, like the Qurayshi camp, I've heard people make an argument for or against hijab depending on the women they're interested in at the, at the moment. 